I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. In my family, the number six million had been ubiquitous. Grandma would use it as a non sequitur. When my father was growing up and claimed to be bored, grandma would say, bored? When I was your age, we had no food. Your family is dead, six million Jews dead, and you're bored? When I refused the fourth bowl of chicken soup, she pulled out the number as well. Six million Jews die in the Holocaust, and you're not hungry? Six million was printed on a poster that hung on their living room wall, greeting guests with that integer twisted up in a barbed wire Star of David. That's Noah Letterman. As a journalist, Noah has written about travel, sports, even beer. But his deepest exploration is a memoir, A World Erased, a grandson's search for his family's Holocaust secrets. I grew up in a town on Long Island, a pretty Jewish town. And my grandparents lived in Brighton Beach, New York. Probably moved there from like Canarsie, uh, which is also in Brooklyn, maybe when they were, when I was eight years old or something like that. And, you know, between Brighton Beach in Brooklyn and Great Neck, New York, I, I really sort of lived in these two very Jewish worlds, 
and they were quite different. I mean, Long Island was a you know a nice suburban area, and Brighton Beach was a, a little more like a beach town if you could picture it in Brooklyn. <laughs> so uh, it was it was filled with all of these survivors um, and Jews from the old country, as well as you know various other populations, and it it, it really just sort of always felt like I was moving between these two very different worlds. Uh, and whenever I was in Brighton Beach, I was always curious about all of these men and women who had, had these numbers, you know, these, these tattoos uh, scrawled on their arm. Most of my friends, all of their grandparents were uh, born in America, where I had these two grandparents who had come from Europe, uh, came with nothing, and really had all of their murdered family members hanging on the bedroom wall. So to visit with my grandparents and to see these numbers and to see these people who I had never known but should have been, you know, my great uncles and my great grandparents and cousins, however removed, um, it just left me with all of these questions. And so, you know, when it, when a kid I think is denied stories and answers, it just makes them more curious. And I was always sort of like interested in, in my family's history on those, on those trips to Brighton Beach. How old do you remember being when you first actually noticed the numbers? You know, I, I think growing up, the numbers always just seemed like they belong there. And I, I think it was it, like, it was more striking to me when people didn't have the numbers on their arm. When I was really young, I, that's how I remember it. And then obviously I got to a point where, you know, I realized, oh, there, there, there are a lot of people of my grandparents' generation who don't have these, these numbers. And it obviously means something very different and, and it's very unique in a, in a very terrible sort of way. Um, so I think I was always aware of the numbers, just the meaning of, of these digits on their arms changed for me. Describe your grandmother for me. Um, so she was this very stubborn, domineering, and loving person. You know, she grew up in a time where she starved every day, and she made it her business um, to feed every single member of her family. Um, you know, I, there's even a story of her inviting up a, a cab driver who, who, who dropped her off because the guy was hungry, so she felt it her duty to feed this, this guy. And, you know, she took feeding to the extremes. So she never sat down at the table to join us for a meal, um, but she always stood over us and, and hounded us to eat, eat, eat. And these were the commands that she always gave. And, you know, through food, she controlled us, and through food, she showed us her love. And she was just this, like, sweet woman if she loved you, and she could be, you know, quite the opposite if she didn't. But for every single member in the small family that she and my grandfather created in, in America, you know, she loved us all, and, and, she, and, and we could do no wrong in her eyes. So, um, yeah, she, that, that's, that's sort of her in a nutshell. That's great. And, and how about your grandfather? Describe your grandfather. My grandfather was also loving. I called him Poppy. Um, 
And, you know, he and I would just spend our days whenever I, I would come over to visit playing cards. Um, he'd always sort of let me win in the beginning and then, you know, show me that, that he still, you know, controlled the game at the end. And then if we weren't playing cards, we were watching wrestling on television. And, you know, he, he and my grandmother had this very um, interesting relationship where they just, you know, went at each other all the time. But you know, he always sort of let her win. But then he would look over at me, give me a little wink and a nod that uh, let me know that he, he, he somehow, in, in his own way, had, had the upper hand at things. But he, he let her think that she was winning the fight. Mm-hmm. And I guess she probably also thought she was winning the fight but you know they, they I think they loved each other very much but I never saw it expressed <laughs> when when I was there it was just uh, them going at it all the time mm-hmm. but uh you know toward the end of every fight I guess I, sh- I shouldn't say I didn't see it expressed because at the end of every fight she, she would always go over and say you know oh my husband and give him a little loving pinch or a meal in your book pretty early in your book you describe as a kid knowing that your grandparents had kept their stories uh, secret. I think that was the line, actually, you know. And am I correct in remembering that you would, you know, sort of snoop around, kind of looking for what they didn't want to talk about? Yeah. So as a kid, they kept all the stories from me. Um, and and the main reason for that was what I would learn later on is basically the, they told their children, so my father and my aunt everything about what they had been through and this traumatized my father and it, and it, and it traumatized my aunt. They, they had this like one shared nightmare, um, of hearing goose stepping, seeing this fog all around them and, and feeling like they couldn't move. And when they told my grandmother about it, she realized that this connected to the, the time where she was thrown from a barn, uh, loft and she couldn't move. And right after that, Uh, Her mother was murdered while they were holding hands. Just think about a nightmare so vivid and powerful, so connected to traumatic family history, that a brother and a sister actually dream the same recurring dream. Being the children of Holocaust survivors, the second generation, informs so much of the inner worlds of Noah's father and aunt. My father actually slept with this suitcase packed beneath his bed because he sort of believed not like, would the Nazis come to Brooklyn, New York? He he was pretty certain of that. But, you know, will I be ready to run when they do arrive? Um, So, you know, to have that sort of ingrained in your in your being when you live in a in a relatively safe place um, is pretty troubling. And my aunt, you know, I think partly because of the stories and maybe also to sort of challenge my grandmother's, you know, reign, um, she, she had all these eating disorders because it was sort of like the one thing that she could control, like not to eat her food that her mother forced onto her plate and, and sort of monitored that, that, that this would go down her throat. As far as, you know, who they were as adults and how these stories affected them, um, you know, my, I, my aunt was always seemed much more fragile than my father. And um, my father had a very 
you know, he had a great sense of humor, and I think it was his way of just, just sort of deflecting. And and when I started writing this book, and I would go to my aunt and, and father and ask all sorts of questions, everything was buried. Nothing was remembered. Let's take a quick break here. Noah grows up in suburban Great Neck, but always in the shadow of what had transpired two generations before him, haunted by the stories his grandparents carried and the impact of those stories. He begins to internalize it as some kind of responsibility. If anyone in the family is going to unpack the history of his grandparents and what they went through, it's going to be him. Then, when Noah's 18, his grandpa dies. And he's afraid that all of his grandpa's stories will die with him. I'd always been the grandchild, I think, with the most questions. When it came time to, uh, you know, to sit around at the meals, I was always trying to get nearest to my grandfather and, and ask the questions. But it wasn't until, I think, my grandfather died and I'm standing in the cemetery burying him, um, and I'm and I'm sort of looking around, and I'm noticing that all of the all of the gravestones have these stars of David on them appropriately. It's a Jewish cemetery, but inside those stars of David, a lot of the the tombstones had Holocaust survivor, Holocaust survivor written within the star, and I, I, I looked over at my grandfather's casket and then out at the cemetery and it really felt like we were burying all of these stories, you know, all of these things that I would never learn or so I felt at the time. Then later on that, that day and, and week um, when we had the shiva, all of my grandparents' friends started to come to the apartment. And, you know, these Holocaust survivors, they would like shuffle in and sit at the table and for all of the years I had known them, they, they always sat there and spoke in this, like, coded Yiddish. And, you know, it was probably comfortable for them to speak in Yiddish, but also it was convenient for them to not have to, you know, have this kid snooping in on their conversations and, and not have the burden of, like, damaging another, <laughs> another young kid in the family. So they spoke in Yiddish, but at the shiva, and, you know, at this point I'm 18 years old, I think for my benefit, they started speaking in English and they started telling all of these stories about my grandfather. Noah hears two incredible stories during the Shiva as the old Jews sit at the table noshing on bagels and locks. In the first story, his grandfather, who's working on the ship that's taking him and Noah's grandma to America, is accosted by a sailor. My grandfather had a job on the ship and this other sailor uh, came up to him and he was an anti-Semite, and basically just said, it's a shame that you should see the end of this war. And then my grandfather knocks him out. And, you know, to, to me, that was just such like a phenomenal moment because it's this little Jew who's standing up to this like six foot six anti-Semite. And then, you know, when, the, when he's taken to the ship's captain, the ship's captain just looks at the giant sailor and the little Jew and he laughs, but, you know, in, in my mind, I'm realizing, wow, this was like a really brave and tough man. And then that was confirmed for me even more when, when I learned this story that took place in the barn. And the barn story takes place during the Holocaust when my grandfather is 
essentially hiding in this barn with a friend, and um, a Nazi walks in on him, and he demands my grandfather's boots. My grandfather, Poppy, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to turn over his boots, so instead he tells his friend to extinguish the light, and he runs this pitchfork through the Nazi's throat, and he leaves him dead there. These stories make Noah hungry for more. He worries that now many of them are gone forever. His grandma falls into a period of mourning that lasts five years. During this time, she cries and wails her husband's name repeatedly and essentially waits to die herself. When Noah tries to speak with her about the past, she responds by saying, Oi, it's too much. So when it comes to his grandparents' stories, he's now in a holding pattern. His father won't talk about it, his aunt won't talk about it. His grandma won't talk about it. After he graduates from college, Noah sets off to travel. He's a surfer, a detail I love about him. And he essentially follows the waves wherever they take him. This was purely a trip to catch waves around the world. you know. So I, I essentially just had a, a backpack and a surfboard. And I was working jobs. Uh, saving up the money from those jobs and just, you know, buying flights to the cheapest place I could go and, you know, trying to live off, like, a few hundred bucks in a month uh, in, like, Central America. And then I had buddies all over, like, New Zealand and Australia where I'd find work there. And, you know, it, it was just to sort of break away from the life I had known. And one of the things that I had always known in life is to trust nobody, you know, because I grew up with not my grandparents' stories, but the, the warnings sort of implied by their experiences and their, and their histories. This, this idea that, you know, your own neighbors will turn on you, this idea that you'll never be safe in your own home. And I guess that, you know, in, in some way, which was never said to me, always kept from me, but somehow I understood that um, when I went off on this trip. I didn't trust people, and I think that was sort of like one thing that had to change, you know, and, and, and I think overall it mostly did. I don't think you could ever change that completely, but, you know, I was sharing hostel rooms with with other random strangers. I was, you know, uh, hitchhiking through various Central American villages and cities and throughout Australia. And I guess, you know, at a, at a certain point, I had to put my entire belief system aside and, and try something different to, to get by. After a year, Noah's girlfriend, who was a year behind him in college, meets up with him in Europe. Money's tight, and they're getting by, staying in hostels, cooking their own meals. But at some point, his girlfriend checks her ATM balance, and it's zero. She probably had been hacked or something. You know, we realized that if we wanted to sustain any sort of global travel, we'd have to go farther east. Because at the time, 2004, most of these countries were not on the euro. Things were really cheap uh, in the east as compared to the west. Farther east inching dangerously close to the one country Noah was never, ever going to set foot in, the place where the atrocities happened to his family. 
Poland. We started in Hungary, and in Hungary, I saw the uh, this new museum that was built, and it was really the first time in a year I'd seen this word, but it appeared on the side of the building and it said Holocaust Museum, huge letters. Well, I walked into the museum, and we wound up sneaking into this uh, this private tour for these Americans. You know, they invited us to join them throughout the museum. And then when my girlfriend and I got to the Czech Republic, we saw the Josefov, which is the Jewish quarter in the Czech in Prague. And it was preserved because Hitler wanted to uh, create this sort of museum to an exterminated people. So, well, essentially all the synagogues are still there. And, you know, obviously he failed in his plan to commit you know, full extermination, but it, it saved this little community uh, or this little town. And then when I went to a, a concentration camp for the first time, you know, I started to have all these questions and feelings and, and memories of my grandparents sort of like flood back in. Noah doesn't know what to do with these feelings and memories. So he reaches out to the one person who he thinks will understand what he's going through. I sent this email to my father, but I also kind of half expected that he would just write back, like, leave me alone, I don't want to talk about it, as he always had when I was growing up. But um, oddly enough, he sends me this email with my grandparents' addresses in Poland and all the camps that they had been in. And I had never known this information existed. Like, I didn't know he knew any of the camps besides Auschwitz and Majdanek, because they were sort of like household names when I was growing up, you know, like when, whenever anybody would ask my, my father, like what his parents had gone through, he, you know, he'd say Auschwitz and Majdanek, and now let's not talk about it anymore. Where had your father kept this list? <laughs> so he kept the list in the liquor cabinet. So I think if I was a little bit more daring as a, as a young man and, you know, rebellious, I would have had access to this information. Re- reaching for the vodka <laughs> and instead finding the list of... Yeah, or maybe it would have turned me off uh, to alcohol. But um, in any case, I had their addresses, and I was one country away from Poland. And I thought, wait a minute, like, what could be there? You know, what could I find out? I can't shy away from this now. And so it was really the first time I had legitimate information. And so I kind of amended my one rule, and I went into Poland, and that's sort of where all of this became possible. We're going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsor. Increasingly, Noah's explorations make his inner world more and more populated by his lost relatives. He had always been haunted by a family photograph of his grandma's, of an enormous clan gathered around the Seder table at Passover. 30 of them. There were no memories of these people because they sort they just sort of like haunted us like ghosts, you know, hanging there in this in this one family photograph. And you know, whenever I asked about who they were as a kid, my grandmother just summed it all up with the same word repeated three times every time, and it was just dead, dead, and dead because that was everybody's story. Every single person in that photograph had been murdered except for my grandmother. And my grandfather had no photographs, and he also had no people left in his family either because every single person had been murdered 
um, when, when his town was liquidated, you know. So I didn't even have names to attach to any of those people. And I think as I started to learn more, you know, and, and when I learned more because when I came back from Poland, uh, my grandmother opened up. I went to her apartment in Brighton Beach, and uh, I remember it being a, a nice day. Everybody was sort of like down on the beach, enjoying, uh, enjoying the ocean, playing volleyball and walking the boardwalk. And then there I am with my grandmother. She's crying to the ceiling still. She, she's got this, she had this necklace made of my grandfather where he's like laser printed into gold and she wears them around her neck like he's a, like he's a god. And, you know, she would carry this photograph of him to every room in the house wherever she went. So it was, it was both touching and, 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 and pathetic. Um, but this was like the life that she sort of subjected herself to. And it was just full of, of self-inflicted suffering. And, you know, to watch that for 30 minutes when everybody's enjoying the day outside and these two scenes are, are juxtaposed together, um, I, I, I couldn't take it anymore. So 10 minutes would go by and, you know, 20 minutes would go by and you'd just be watching the second hand on the clock tick past, tick past. And then so finally at the 30-minute mark, I just said to my grandmother, you know, I went to Poland. And I figured, you know, at first I shouldn't say anything like that because who knew what it would trigger? Her eyes lit up and she, she leaned forward and she asked me if I went to the Umschlingplatz. And she also had this like strange smile on her face. And I, and I call it strange because the Umschlingplatz was the place that um, the Jews were transported from to basically their death. Pretty much everybody who went to the Umschlingplatz would die because they wound up in a concentration camp. This was not only just like this depot into the concentration camps, but it was really, you know, the, the, the depot into all of my grandparents' Holocaust stories. And, you know, from then on, we just sat at that table and she told me her stories. What made her open up? And I think it's because maybe she realized her time was running out and she wanted to tell her stories. Maybe it was because she was tired of suffering the way she had forced herself to suffer over the death of my grandfather. Um, or maybe it was, you know, she felt like I did what was necessary to understand her as much as I possibly could in, you know, the year 2004, you know, because obviously I'm a, a, a Jew from New York who has known a pretty, you know, easy life compared to what my grandparents had gone through. So there's no way to, to get any, to get anywhere near what, what they had experienced, but maybe she felt like, all right, I saw their house. I saw their street. I spoke to the, the neighbors who probably turned on them. So, you know, maybe I did what was necessary of a grandchild who is willing to take on the burden of the stories and, and the importance of the memories. And how long after that did she pass away? We had about six years where, where we sat at that table, you know, every 
week, two weeks, three weeks, however, you know, however long between visits. And we'd sit there for a couple of hours or however long she could handle. And she would tell me her stories. Mm. And um, yeah, so six years of that. I mean, what a gift that you gave her, um, you know, that she also gave you. But um, imagining that you weren't looking at the second hand of the clock anymore, like that it was now there was, you know, like something broke open in her uh, where she was able to to speak about all this in a way that was very different from before. It was like 2005, 2006, and I thought to myself, I'm going to write a book. Because I, I started getting answers to my questions, and I figured, you know what, I'm going to write a book about, about my grandfather. Because to me, he'd always sort of been like this hero, right? Like the guy who I would learn would break out of a, of a cattle car that went to Treblinka. Nobody escaped Treblinka, and yet here's this guy who escapes the cattle car going to Treblinka. Everyone who went to Treblinka died, but not him. Here is this guy who runs a pitchfork through some Nazi's neck and, and, and lives to tell about it. Here's this guy who was part of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. He, he worked as a sewer rat, right? One of the guys who essentially broke out of the Warsaw Ghetto and traded for arms and food so that they could live to fight another day. And he was just such a phenomenal person and, and a tough guy. And I guess being a grandson Maybe there was something silly in me that just, like, I was more attracted to his stories than to hers, for whatever reason. And so when I sat down with my grandmother to ask her questions, like, oh, tell me about Poppy in the Warsaw Ghetto. Tell me about Poppy in Majdanek, which was a concentration camp. Tell me about Poppy in Auschwitz. She just shrugged and said, you know, I, I don't know about Poppy in the Warsaw Ghetto. I don't know about Poppy here or there, but I could tell you about what happened to me there. And that was such a powerful moment for me. And to think that like my grandfather was, you know, capital S survivor and she was just this lady who survived was a, was a ridiculous thing for me to think. And so, you know, I, I think she gave me a gift as well to, to just open my, not only to share her stories, but to open my eyes to like the reality of things. There's one story Noah tells about his grandma now whenever anyone wants to know more about her, which sums up her courage and her conviction. This one time in the Warsaw Ghetto, she is um, she's walking down the street and there's this bonfire and she can feel the heat even before she turns the corner. And when she does turn the corner and sees the, the fire and all this, these books burning, this Nazi says to her, I want you to go up into that building and bring down the books, throw down the books. So, you know, she complies, she goes up into the building, and she sees that these are books with, with her God's name in it. And, you know, she, she looks down at the book burning, and she says to herself, this is not something that she's going to take part in. So instead of throwing the books out the window, like the Nazi had instructed her to do, and as the Nazi was yelling for her to do when she looked out, she takes this little string and ties up the books and walks downstairs with them. And when she gets there, the Nazi points a gun in her face because she defied orders, and she just closes her eyes and accepts the bullet. And obviously that bullet never came, but the books were ripped out of her hands, and, you know, I guess in her mind, 
she did what she had to do to to stand up for what she believed in and that's sort of you know very telling about who she was as a person the letterman's story like many stories of inherited trauma is so much about the way that the aftermath of trauma shapes our lives from one generation to the next when it's buried hidden pushed to the side it festers and creates new difficulties suitcases beneath beds shared nightmares eating disorders but then sometimes it passes like a lit torch into the hands of a curious child who has questions he can't let go of and that child grows up to research and report a story that restores dignity to the lost and gives his grandmother the gift however painful of having her own life witnessed and seen i think my father and my aunt have a a new found perspective on on who their mother was you know i think they they both found her to be very difficult um she was difficult but you know at the same time she was this person who went through such suffering to you know to survive the war and and to create a life for generations that would follow um so i think you know every time my my father would come home after my grandfather died and and he was like cursing her for for driving him crazy because she did she she made his life miserable um and she said things that were very hurtful he was just able to then like put it all in perspective and say wow like this is what she went through and i could take a few punches from from this lady who gave me life so i think um i think that was cathartic for him as well and i think both of them just appreciated having these stories written you know having them recorded and and having them have a future you know whether it's a, a wider audience or whether it's just my children when they grow up sitting down and saying wow these were my great grandparents Noah has two young daughters who will never know those 30 people gathered around the Seder table, all the branches of their family who were killed. How will they metabolize the story of their ancestors? What kind of meaning will it have for them? And how does a family hold such a story generation after generation? I think they'll maybe understand what the Jews and more specifically our family had gone through but i'm sure that there's also like a mythical quality to reading a book about people that you've actually never met um so while you know my grandfather and and my and my grandmother were real people to me to them you know i guess they'll be sort of legends and um i guess if that's the only way to keep them alive for my children then so be it but i think there's also plenty for them to understand and to appreciate as far as like what it means to have great grandparents who had survived the Holocaust and what it means to have such a small family even though you know we're a few generations removed from it but still lingers Many thanks to my guest Noah Letterman Noah is the author of A World Erased, 
a grandson's search for his family's Holocaust secrets. You can find him at noahletterman.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Lowell Brulanti is the audio engineer. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and at Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.